chapter 2. We're going to continue along kind of where we were at last week. We're going to take a whole nother... Um, as the Lord leads, we're going to take another couple messages, a couple sessions probably, and deal with some of these things in Hosea 2. Let's go ahead and just pray and, and we'll get in the Word. Lord, we love you. We set our heart toward you. We set our face toward you like Daniel. God, we ask you to reveal, give us light, give us revelation. Speak to us by your Spirit, God, that our heart would come alive. Revelation of the knowledge of who you are. So, Father, in Jesus' name I'm asking, would you come? Would you come? Would you minister to us in these moments? Would you liberate our hearts with another revelation of truth? Speak, quiet our heart in your love. Set our face toward you, Jesus. We desire you. Holy Spirit, come and be the teacher. You teach every heart. You teach every individual. Teach our hearts. And we just give you thanks, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said amen. Hosea chapter 2. Last week we spent time talking about the, uh, the revelation of God as a bridegroom God. As a God who said, I'm going to marry you. It's interesting because we don't really think of God that way. But last week we spent um, the entire session talking about two facets of what that means. And Hosea 2, we want to take a look at this and look at these verses. And uh, verse 14, which Rebecca actually just quoted a minute ago. This is the verse she was quoting. We're going to read it for just a moment. It says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her. And I will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her there. I will give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor, which that's the, that's the place of trouble, as a door of hope. And she shall, she shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. And it shall be in that day says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. For, for I will take from her mouth the names of the Baals and they shall be remembered by their name no more. And in that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and with the creeping things of the ground. Bow and sword of battle I will shatter from the earth to make them lie down safely. Verse 19, this is where we're going to focus tonight. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. It's good verses. These verses have, um, well, let me just make it clear. Hosea is a prophet. He's a day of the Lord prophet. And what he's talking about is uh, the, the revelation of what the people of God will look like at the end of the age. Hosea and Amos are two contemporaries, and they, I believe they primarily prophesied two sides of the coin for the day of the Lord. I believe Amos primarily prophesied the terrible side of the day of the Lord, and Hosea primarily prophesied the great side of the day of the Lord. Malachi and Joel both describe the day of the Lord as a great and terrible 
day. Like one of them says, it's very terrible. Now, we don't have a lot of preaching on the day of the Lord right now, but I believe that as time begins to escalate, that we'll hear a lot more preaching on the day of the Lord. And we certainly, from this place, will begin to thunder a lot about the day of the Lord. Because we believe the day of the Lord certainly is at hand. It's at hand, and the valley of decision is at hand, as Joel prophesied in Joel 3. So Hosea is talking about this reality that the church is going to come to in that day, and that day is the day of the Lord, and that's a time frame that um, includes the return of the Lord to the earth. He says, in that day, you will no longer call me master, but in that day, you will call me husband. Now, that's a phenomenal reality for the people of God to enter into uh, a marriage relationship with God. We don't think of God so much as a husband. If he is a husband, what kind of a husband is he? I mean, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around that. You know, I was talking to a a gentleman the other day, and he was telling me, he goes, you know, I'm really working on this bridegroom thing. And this this guy's Latino, and he said, he goes, you know, I'm I'm trying to get it, but, you know, he goes, man, I'm, I'm Puerto Rican, man. I was raised, you know, a man is a man. I'm not trying to pucker up and kiss Jesus. He goes, he goes, I'm nobody's woman. That's what he said to me. He goes, I'm nobody's woman. He goes, I'm just having a hard time with it. He goes, I, mean, I see parts of it. He goes, I'll tell you what. He goes, I, he goes, I'm a son. He goes, I'm a son. I see myself as a son. I said, I said you know, that's awesome. And, and I believe we first have to be well-fathered before we can be well-married. And... Uh, but I said, you know, have you considered the difference between a son and a bride? I said, for instance, the son will never have partnership with the father. He may later get the dad's business, but while the dad's running things, guess what? He never gets to partner with the father. He gets to work for him. I said, but the bride gets uh, comparability, partnership with the husband. Have you considered that? And he goes, huh, I never, never thought of it that way. I go, yeah, yeah. You get, you get, you know, 50% of the deal. He goes, whoa. I go, right. And I, and I said, you know, it's much less about come and give me a big juicy kiss Jesus. It's much less about that or dancing, you know, and, and, and you know, the, the natural romantic um, symbols that come across our mind. It's much less about that then it is about this, the, the eternal God, the divine God saying, I partner with you, even though you are uh, created by me, I raise you to a place of dignity, and I join myself to you forever. That's, that's, that's the bridal thing. <laughs> you, get, you and I get to be forever joined to the divine and, and we get to rule and reign with him, the Bible says. And when he reigns, he reigns with a rod of iron. And sometimes we think of the bride thing and the bridegroom. We think of this, you know, lovey-dovey hearts and flowers and, you know, red paper and candies. God said, I am, I am making you into a wife that's comparable to me, just like I gave Adam a woman that was comparable to him. I am making you into a bride that is comparable to me, and you and I will reign. 
And I love Revelations 19.7. It says, the, the wife of the Lamb has made herself ready. Ready for what? Ready to rule the nations. Ready to rule the universe with God. So when he says here, in that day, you're not going to call me master anymore. You're going to call me husband. He is talking about divine partnership. Have you thought about what it, what it takes for God, who is completely perfect, 100% perfect, all day, every day, he's perfect. He has to humiliate himself to the place where he would say, will you be my wife when he talks to you and I? Have you thought about the divine humiliation? Have you thought on the other side about the incredible dignity and humanity? That you and I created beings, dust. We're dust. Without the Spirit of the Lord, we're nothing more than dust. We're dirt. Yet He gives us corporality, gives us a body, and then He breathes His life into us. The only reason you and I are alive is because He's breathed the breath of life, the Spirit, the pneuma of God into us. So we're alive by Him. And He goes, you know what? You're a created dust human that I made... And I, who am perfect and eternal and divine forever, want to join myself to you. Can you imagine the dignity in that? It's powerful. So, when we talk about God being our husband, the implications are far more than just, you know, putting on a dress and dancing a waltz with God. It's more than that. It's, it's not even that. That's, you know what I'm saying? That's, that's our natural picture and see, that picture works for all the ladies because we all want to dance and be romanced by a prince. Isn't that right? All the ladies do. But the men don't. Right? We, we voted against same-sex marriage. We're not for that. You see what I'm saying? So, so the symbols work for the feminine side, but the, those symbols are a little challenging for the male side. And that's just the truth. And so what we've got, to, we've got to comprehend, well, what's he doing with this symbol of marriage? He's saying it's the most intimate relationship I can, I can point to. And he says, that's what I want to be with you. Intimate and knowledgeable and, and at a depth of knowledge with you and I flowing together in divine partnership eternally. Okay? And so there's... There's a big piece that happens on this side, and then a culmination that happens on that side, and the culmination is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. But before that marriage supper ever happens, there's this thing called ready that his bride gets to be. And I believe that has big-time implications in terms of what the church will be in the earth before Jesus returns. A ready bride, what does a ready bride look like? Well, I'll tell you, she knows how to rule a few things. She knows how to operate in the kingdoms of the, of the dynamics of the family business, the kingdom of God. She, she's um, arrayed in beauty. She looks like a woman he'd want to marry. Are you following that? So it's, it's powerful in, in so many ways. So, <clears throat> we talked last night about what the word betrothed means and forever and eternal and righteousness. And tonight I want to just talk about this issue of justice. Justice, there's, there's some teeth in this message. Because he says, I'm going to betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me. I like how he has to say it twice because it's like they don't believe him the first time. He says, in righteousness I'll betroth you. And in justice. And in loving kindness and in mercy. In faithfulness. And then you'll know me. 
righteousness we talked about last week. Righteousness is really the result. It's, it's the beautifying result of holy living. It's beauty on the believer. Righteousness. The Bible says the nations will be drawn to our righteousness. That there's going to be such a, an aura, such, such a, a glory on the people of God that even kings and leaders of nations will be drawn to us. That's what righteousness really is. At its, at its boiled down best, that's what righteousness is. It's the result of holy living that beautifies the, the believer. Righteousness. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's taking on the very character and the nature of who God is unto being absolutely glorious and splendorous before the nations. Righteousness. A beautified bride is going to be the greatest, and it is the plan, but a beautified bride is God's evangelistic tool for the nations. He says, when they see your righteousness, the nations will be drawn to you. When the church gets a revelation of the beauty of the Lord and then becomes beautiful herself in righteousness, the result of holy living, when she becomes beautified and glowing with the glory of God, the nations will take notice. It's hard for us to say that Jesus is the greatest husband, he's glorious, when the bride is not glowing in beauty. Right? We're broken down and our dress is a mess and our hair's a trip and all that. There's no way anybody's going to believe that our husband's a good husband. But if we're glowing and we're, and we're you know, glorious, like a diadem, like a diadem it says in Isaiah 62, in the hand of the king, the nations will take note. And that's what we're on. We are on a collision course with that, for real. God is doing that right now. He's alluring our heart to the place of intimacy. And, 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 and some, it's like this. Oh, God. It's like, it's like Rebecca. She goes, ah, oh, I'm created for this. And he goes, good. I give you IHOP. And she goes, ah, and she blows up. And she just does IHOP forever. And she's, be, you know, beautiful in the Lord and, and glowing in righteousness. For another, it looks like this. God, I can do it all. Anything you want me to do, I'll do it. He goes, that's right, honey. Put the pedal to the metal. Do it all for me. And they go, yes, God, I can do everything you want. I'll do all of it. He goes, yeah, that's right. Floor it. And you go, yeah, God. And you floor it and you slam into a wall. And you go, God, why'd you tell me to floor it? I slammed on the wall. He goes, because I wanted you to kill yourself. So you'd come to the end of yourself and realize you need me and not ministry activity to be glorious. <laughs> so it looks different for all sorts, but he's alluring us into this place called the wilderness, and he's putting an ache inside. That's what the wilderness does. He goes, oh, I've got to have him. And he goes, that's right. Now what do you do with it? You go, oh, I don't know, I'm aching. He goes, that's right. He goes, have you ever thought about Luke 2? Have you ever thought about night and day in the place of prayer? Because you've got to, oh, on the inside, that's got to be satisfied. How will it be satisfied? It will never, your longing to know God will never be satisfied through ministry activity. It won't be satisfied through platform or title. It won't be sat satisfied for knowing the coolest person or rubbing shoulders with the cool people or, or writing articles or whatever your thing is. It, you, the ache on the inside will never be satisfied through activity, ever. It'll only be satisfied through intimacy and the knowledge of God. So that thing's called the wilderness. He's alluring you. He's calling you and drawing you to this place called the wilderness. So you go, ah! And he says, now, come and know me. Because I want to betroth myself to you. And he wants to do this thing in justice. I thought about that. That's interesting. Justice. Justice. That's an interesting term for a marriage. 
You know, you don't find many, many like grooms going to their, you know, bride to be and going, honey, I tell you what, one thing our marriage is going to be about, it's going to be justice. You know the that you know what I'm saying? That doesn't really evoke the the romantic juices. You know, it's like justice, like like you know, gavels and judge seats and justice. That's it, honey. It's going to be established on justice. Like, what about the romance? What about the beauty and what about, what about the you know the good things? He says, no, no, no. The foundational core of it, justice. So what is that? That's got to be important. <laughs> I was looking at it, I thought, huh, it's interesting, betrothed and justice. But he says righteousness and justice. He puts them together, he groups them. So I was looking at it, and I was like, okay, Psalm 89 says this. Righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. Mercy and truth go before his face. Then Psalm 97 says it again. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. So I thought, huh, if his kingdom is built on righteousness and justice then certainly his marriage will be built on those two things. Righteousness, again, being the beauty side of God, that we behold and we become beautiful. It's the love of the Lord. It's, it's, the, it's the sweetness of God, the righteousness side. We've misunderstood righteousness altogether. Righteousness is mostly about beauty. It's about beholding beauty and becoming beautiful. That's really what righteousness is. If I can give you a vision of how beautiful God is, you will say no to everything that draws you to sin. And you'll become beautified. That's really what righteousness is about. It's about a revelation of the beauty of God. It's coming to understand what Ezekiel saw, what John saw, what Daniel saw, what Moses saw. Why are these men living so unashamedly righteously? Because they saw him in his beauty. I believe David saw it too. Because when David brought the ark back, the very first thing he turns around and he does Psalm 105 and Psalm 96. And in Psalm 96 he says, oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Very first thing he said once he set the ark in the tabernacle of David. He had a revelation of some kind of beauty, something. Psalm 27, he says, I want to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. See, beauty of holiness, we never understood what that is. That's all about righteousness. That's all about, I'm gazing on the beauty of God unto becoming holy before him. It's, it's, it's righteousness. That's what that is. But then he goes, I want to, my throne is established on beauty. And we see the beauty of the Lord in Revelations 4 and Ezekiel 1. We see all that, that, that amazing symphony happening before the throne of God. We see this, this explosion of beauty. See, we, we are wowed by so many things, but you have never been wowed until you've been wowed by God. Because who He is and where He lives is so wonderful, so amazing. It's, it, I mean, it just dwarfs everything on this planet, yet we run headlong and spend all of our finances on stuff to, to wow us when the most beautiful thing is free of charge and all you have to do is just gaze. He says, so I'm going to establish my throne and righteousness and beauty, but I'm also going to bring justice. And I thought about this and I thought, you know, we have got to be a people, hear me, have got to be a people who will embrace the beauty and the love of God, but also embrace the fear and the justice of God. And that's really what he's saying. My throne is established on love and beauty and on fear or awe, reverence and justice. Because the justice of God is fearsome. And we're going to get into this. I'm probably not going to cover close to what I need to, but I'm going to blow through some of this pretty quickly, so listen fast. The love of God and the fear of God, they're, they're two sides of the same coin. They really are. 
And without, here's the deal, without the fear of the Lord, without the understanding of, of the justice of God, you will love God sensually. You will love him sensually and you will think of him less than he is. You will think he's a greasy grace kind of God, just, just whatever, come what may, and that there will be no teeth to, to the, Christian, the Christianity that you have. See, the person that loves God, has, that has no fear of God, they have problems, they have sin problems. The person that fears God but doesn't love God, they have legalism problems. The person that does, has both of those revelations working within them, they've got balance in the Lord. A healthy reverence and awe of God balanced with the reality of his deep desire for you. See, that's what he said when I established my throne on righteousness and justice. It's beauty and fear. We've got to embrace both of those things. See, it's real easy for us, once we begin to hear the message of the bridegroom, it's real easy for us to embrace the God that desires you. The beautiful God that wants to beautify you. The beautiful God that desires you. He's ravished over you. We want that revelation deeply. Isn't that true? Our hearts are aching for it because we've not heard it. We go, oh, yes. But right there when he says, I will betroth you to me. I, yes, I will betroth you to me. I will betroth you to me in beauty and love. We go, yeah. And he goes, and justice. We go, what? He goes, yes. It's who I am. We go, what about the figs and the apples and underneath the tree, Lord? He goes, it's who I am. My throne is established on it. Therefore, my marriage will be established on it. So, what does it mean? What is the justice of God? What's he talking about? I just A quick, easy definition of justice is it's a, it's a divine verdict and... An action against unrighteousness. That's really what the word means. It's, it's a divine verdict. It's a decree. He says, yes, that's wrong and I will take care of it. And, and even more than that, I will do something about it. And he does. He goes, yes, it's wrong. I decree it as unrighteousness. And watch this. And then he judges it. He actually, there's an activity with it. That's what justice is. Justice with just a verdict is a theory. Are you following that? Justice with just a verdict. All that is is theory. But God is a God of action. He definitely takes care of what he says has to get taken care of. And he means what he says and he does what he means and all that, yes. And there's interesting language in the Bible when you start researching justice. But justice is based on something called fairness. I just want to spend a minute on this. It's equity. The, word, the scriptural word is equity. It means fairness. God's justice is based on God's sense of fairness. And here's the thing that we've got to come to grips with. God's fairness is not our sense of fairness. God's equity is not our sense of equity. See, we look on the, on the natural level, and we look at the one guy, and that guy's had all the breaks, it seems like, and then we look at the other guy, and it's like, man, his life is in a shambles, and we go, huh, it's not fair. And God's sense of equity is not our sense of equity. God's sense of equity is based not in stuff that we can see, but it's based in stuff that's unseen. It's based in hidden things. See, God bases his sense of equity, his sense of fairness on something called the human heart. God is an interesting God. He's objective and just and subjective and just all at the same time. He says, I don't judge according to the outward appearance. I judge according to the heart. 
And so we see the one guy that's had all the breaks, and we see the other guy who's had none of the breaks, and we go, oh, it's not fair. And God goes, how can you tell me what's fair? How can you perceive what's fair? How, there's not a one of us who can look at any situation and tell the, re, the real reality of whether or not it's, uh, there's equity and fairness to it or not. Because we don't see it all. But God certainly does. So that's the way he judges. He judges with his own sense of fairness. And he bases it on the inner workings of our heart. Now, find with me First Thessalonians 4. We're going we're gonna to move it a little quicker and this is going to heat up. I'm excited about this concept. See, because when he says, I want to betroth you to me, and I'm going to betroth you to me forever, I'm going to betroth you to me in righteousness, I'm going to betroth you to me in justice, I'm going to betroth you to me in loving kindness, mercy, and faithfulness. Here's what he's saying, guys. He goes, I'm going to marry you to me because of my eternity. Because of my infiniteness. He goes, and because of my beauty and my righteousness. Or in my beauty and my righteousness. And he goes, and because of my justice and in my justice you will marry me. So when we get those six things, when we see those, he's not saying I'm going to marry you and it's going to be like a blind date and you won't know me until you get there. He goes, here's what, the, here's what I'm like. He's, un, he's giving us who he is. He goes, number one, I'm infinite because I'm going to betroth you to me forever. He goes, and then I'm going to put righteousness. He goes, I'm holy, but I'm so holy that I'm beautiful that you, if you actually saw me, it would kill you. That's how beautiful and holy I am. So he's giving attributes. You see what I'm saying? He's, he's saying, this is what I'm like. I'm infinite, and I'm beautiful, and I'm totally just all the time. See, we're not, oh God, help us. We're not marrying a mystery. We're marrying one that's revealing himself to us. The problem is, we don't know him. Isn't it interesting? If you, if you look at these six things, he goes, and then you'll know me. I'm going to betroth you to me in these six areas, and then you'll know me. I'm not saying those are all the attributes of God, but that in some level, that's a thing that brings us into the knowledge of who he really is. So look at First Thessalonians chapter 4. God, we need to know you as the just God, our just bridegroom. We want to know your justice. God, I'm praying that tonight we would want to know your justice. That we wouldn't be satisfied just to know you in beauty and love. But God, we want the whole picture of who you are. God, I pray that we would desire to know the whole picture of who you are and not believe a lie. Look at First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 6. That no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. Because why? The Lord, this is the phrase, the Lord is the avenger. Of all such who? The ones who are defrauded. And Paul says, and I've warned you about this before and testified of it to you. He says, I'm warning you now and I've warned you before. I've forewarned you and now I'm telling you again. And I'm testifying to you that God is an avenger of those that are defrauded. <laughs> what does that look like when the all-powerful God decides to go ahead and divvy out retribution for the ones that have been dealt with unjustly, for those that have been defrauded. Who are you, Lord? I cry with Paul. Who are you, Lord? See, there is a promise of justice. This is where I want to go right now. There's a promise of justice for the people of God. There's a promise of justice for his bride. 
It's a guarantee. It's a, it's a holy guarantee and promise from God that in whatever way, hear me, that you have been defrauded, whatever way you've been abused, misused, mistreated, He is the one who wants to bring justice to your cause. He is your avenger. And so when he stands before you and says, I want to marry you in beauty, but I also want to marry you in justice. He's saying, I want to take full retribution out on anyone who has used you, abused you, and defrauded you. I want to marry you in my justice. Wow. We call it judging anything that hinders love. See, Psalm 103, verse 6. It's interesting. Right there in Psalm 103 that we all know. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, right? Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget none of his benefits. Heals all your diseases. Forgives all your iniquities. You know, redeems your life from destruction. Crowns you with loving kindness. We know all that, right? Four verses. The sixth verse says this. The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Whoa. He executes justice. It's powerful. So here's how it goes. God moves in justice against everything that hinders love. And he does it with a decree and a corresponding action. He says it's unjust and he says I will make it right. And this is what the Lord is saying over you now. Hear me. He's saying I love you. My desire is for you. Gaze on my beauty and become beautiful. He goes I want to betroth you in righteousness. And then he says this. And you know what? Anything. Anything that has caused you to be abused, misused, hindered, defrauded, hurt. He goes, I will lay waste to it and bring justice to it. I decree over you that there is a verdict. That he, he, This is what he's saying. He's saying, I'm decreeing over you. There's a verdict I'm passing that it is not right. And he says, and I will make it right. He says, I will make it right. See, the, the, how do you get in touch with that? How do you get in touch with a God that looks at you in the eye with blazing, you know, infernos of love? He looks at you and he goes, any area that's not right, he goes, I want to make it right. You go, okay, okay. like how? See, he's already given you a divine escort on the inside. What is it in your heart that cries out for justice? What is it in your heart that says, it's not right, it needs to be right? Like maybe you're in here and you're going, it's not right that 70 million children in this last generation have not been able to see the light of day because they were murdered legally in our country. Maybe there's a, there's a groan on the inside that says, it's not just. And I'm telling you, that's your husband, the judge, trying to escort you into touching who he is in his justice. Maybe, you're, maybe you've been hurt and wounded and you don't know how. To get around it. You're, you're going, like, I don't know. I've tried. I've been through the this and the that. And I've tried. And I, it's just the ache cries out for somebody to pay. And he goes, absolutely. Somebody must pay for what's happened to you. And this is the thing. This is our beautiful God. He goes, somebody must pay. Retribution must be taken out on someone for what's happened to you. And he goes, I love you. And I will take out the retribution on myself. 
He is the one that brings the verdict. He decrees it. And then he pours out wrath and judgment on his son for your liberty. See, where we've been done wrong by people, we better cry out, let your judgment fall on the head of your son Jesus and let that man or that woman receive what Jesus took. Hello? When we fall into the place of going, you know, I want to kill that person, we've just missed the point of God as the judge. He judged himself. He died uh, under his own wrath and his own scourge. He died under his own judgment so that we could love and forgive and, and, and as an escort, you know, call people into the reality of who he is. He says, I want to marry you in justice. He goes, I want to take care of it. Wherever you've been done wrong, he says, I want to make it right for you. And watch this. He goes, I want to destroy my son for you and judge anything that's gone wrong with you by doing it to my son. We don't understand the liberty that's available through Jesus. We have no concept of it. He pours out his own wrath on his own self as our judge to give us vindication. He says, I want to betroth you to me in justice. I want to execute righteousness for you. I just believe that the Lord's operation of justice is especially aroused when his own are defrauded. When his own people are defrauded, there's, there's a, a, a special uh, fury that rages within him. He is the bridegroom, folks, but he is also the judge, beloved. And we have got to embrace him as both. If we don't, we have no concept of who he is. And it's interesting that he says, when he's, I, just, I just can't get around that. He says, I'm going to give you beauty, but yeah, you've got to know justice. It's, it's a powerful thing that the one who is the bridegroom is the judge. And here's the thing. If we ask God not to move in judgment, because that's a pretty scary word. If we ask him not to move in judgment, we ask him not to move in justice, we're asking him to disagree with who he is. We're asking him to disagree with the foundation of his kingdom. We must, as his wife, we must be able to stand before him and say, we love you in your goodness. We love you in your kindness. We love you in your desire for us. And we love you in your judgments. And we love you in your justice. And we want to even partner with you in that. See, this has implications in so many ways. See, there's judgments that happen in our heart where God judges everything inside of us that hinders love, every attitude, every thought. He brings us to the end of ourselves till we finally go, oh, I've got to have you. And he goes, good. See, the judgment of God is always for our good. He goes, oh, I wanted to draw you near to me. I'm so glad you've come to the end of yourself. But then there's this aspect of the judgment of God and the justice of God where he actually deals out retribution on people who have joined themselves to sin eternally. For real. For real. He's zealous for justice upon everything that hinders love. I've got too many things to say and I can't get him, get him there. Look at uh, Isaiah 63. While you're turning there, I just want to remind you of Luke 18. 
Luke 18 is the widow who says she cried to this unjust judge and says, Get me justice from my adversary. The unjust judge says, okay, finally, after you've been bugging me, I'll give it to you. God says, look, I'm so different than that. I will give you speedy justice from the adversary when you cry out to me. He is sitting poised on the edge of his seat to pour out and rain out justice for the people of God. And the Bible identifies justice. It identifies healing the sick as justice. Matthew says, when, when Jesus heals the sick, he quotes Isaiah 42. And Isaiah 42 says, Behold my servant who will bring justice to the Gentiles. And Matthew goes, See, it's fulfilled. He's bringing justice by healing the sick. See, justice for the sick is healing. Justice for the demonized is deliverance. Justice for the poor of the earth is, is financial prosperity. Justice for the abused is wholeness. Justice for the de- defrauded is the avenging of God and the making it right. He is the God who wants to bring justice to his church, but his church has to ask him for justice. We've got to decide we want to partner with him in his justice and in his judgments. His judgments are good, that they are right. It's hard for us to imagine. We love our hearts wooed and touched and, and all the senses of, that that gives us. But he, the very first thing he says is, look, I am a God whose throne is a, it's, it's established in justice. And then there's, a, there's, there's, so there's these implications. There's the, the implications in your heart and then there's natural implications in the world. I believe that the United States is experiencing judgment in some ways right now. And certainly the nations of the earth are experiencing natural judgments. So there's personal, spiritual judgments. There's natural, physical, international and scale judgments. And then there's spiritual and natural, eternal judgments at the end of the age. There's spiritual and natural and they're eternal. And Isaiah 63 identifies them, some of them. Revelations gives us 19 of them. But Isaiah 63, it's a, it's a fearsome picture of this bridegroom that we have. It says, who is this who comes from Edom? Edom is modern day Jordan. It's, it's South Jordan, right next to Israel. Who is this who comes with dyed garments from Basra? That's the capital city. It says, this one who's glorious in his apparel. Glorious in his apparel. That's talking about righteous. He's traveling in the greatness of his strength. Look, he says, I who speak in righteousness and mighty to save. They say, why is your apparel red? And why are your garments like one who treads in the wine presses? He says, I have trodden the wine press alone and from the peoples no one was with me. I've trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Look, their blood is sprinkled upon my garments. And I've stained all my robes. The day of vengeance is in my heart and the year of my redeemed has come. Chilling scripture of Jesus at the end of the age. He's striding across the earth. He's actually walking in strength from Basra toward Jerusalem. And his garments are red because he's slain the nations. I liked him when he was feeding me apples and figs under the tree. 
He goes, but you know what? I'm marrying you in righteousness, yeah, and beauty. But I'm marrying you also in justice. He goes, get, he goes, understand who I am. Understand who I am. I have a friend, and she tells a story about what it's like to come into relationship with this one that is the bridegroom and he is the judge. See, John 5 says that the Father has committed all judgment into the hands of the Son. All the judgment. He's going to judge the nations through his Son, Jesus Christ. So my, this, this friend of mine, she, she says it like this. She goes, you know, I picture coming to the revelation of the betrothal and the marriage. She goes, I picture it like this. Like she, and she, you know, she goes, she's romantic. And she goes, it's like I'm away for a summer. And I'm on some, you know, island. And it's, you know, palm trees and sweet fruit and good sunsets. And all the 